Welcome to the Tournament Poker Edge podcast, brought to you by TournamentPokerEdge.com, the only podcast dedicated exclusively to poker tournament strategy. Now here's your host, Clayton Fletcher. Hello once again, everybody, and welcome to the Tournament Poker Edge podcast. I'm your host, Clayton Fletcher, here in New York City where I am reading through all the tweets about the uh, alleged cheater at Stone's Casino Gambling Hall, whatever that place is called, in Northern California, where it seems the entire poker world is focused on a player by the name of Mike Postal, 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 I don't know. He's probably going postal at this point uh, with the amount of attention he is currently getting. Uh, It appears that this player has gone 52-2 and by last count on the live stream at that particular casino slash gambling hall slash place where people play poker. Uh, that's a ridiculous record. Probably the best I've ever heard of. And some of the plays that <laughs> Mr. Possle has made are, let's just say, superhuman. And what's been going on is a popular player named Veronica. She's on Twitter, Angry Polak. That's her... Twitter handle, okay, so don't send me hate mail. She made up her own Twitter handle. I'm going to assume she's from Poland. Uh, Sort of floated the idea that perhaps this player is cheating. And then some of the uh, big name vloggers in the poker world, your Doug Polks, your Joey Ingrams, you know the guys, um, the ones with millions of YouTube hits and never any sleeves. Uh, have started an FBI-level investigation into this player, and they've pointed out some plays that he made with the general assertion that he's probably cheating. Um, I can't say that this person is cheating. I will say that some of the plays that I watched on some of these videos are so far above the rim that I can't name any players that I know that would be capable of making them. You know, I'm talking about like folding for one bet on a king high flop, holding king 10 against an opponent who has king jack. Uh, You know, things like that. Just that most of us wouldn't be able to get away from big hands like he does. And likewise, he seems to have an incredibly high uh, success rate on his bluff attempts. So I am from America where we believe that everyone who's guilty or who's accused of something is innocent until proven guilty. It'll be interesting to see how this story shakes out. Um, Uh, You know, how can we prove that this person cheated? That would be hard to do. Uh, The circumstantial evidence is extremely compelling, but it is just that. Uh, If someone caught him using a device or somehow communicating with players behind the scenes or uh, technicians behind the scenes who are not supposed to talk to players, obviously, during the stream, uh, that would be one thing. But we don't have that kind of proof we just have this player's results and you know it reminds me of the scene in rounders guys when they're about to go in and cheat against the police officers and mike tells worm make it look good uh nothing too fancy don't get cocky make it look good something like that it looks like this guy if he is a cheater forgot about the part of trying to make it look good Uh, It looks like he 
is playing like a super user, which if you're new newer to poker, you might not have heard that term before. But back in the day, there was a website called Ultimate Bet. And on that site, there was a username, Pot Ripper, who was a super user, uh, a player who had hacked in to the software and could actually see everyone's whole cards. So if you're able to do that, you could get something like 52 and 2 out of 54 <laughs> sessions. Now, we're talking about cash games, guys, so I don't want to you know, dwell on the specifics of, of the pots or, or you know, the strategy involved in the hands, but let's just say uh, this guy, he seems to play by feel, and his feel is uncanny, like virtually never wrong. So that makes you wonder. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, but sure, Clayton, maybe he's a cheater. Maybe he's just the best player no one's ever heard of. Well, at least up until now, no one ever heard of him. Uh, isn't it possible that uh, he's just that good? Yes, it is. But it's also possible that there was actual cheating. Now, as many of you know, uh, the technology that is currently used for live streams, including the one from Stone's Gambling Hall is RFID. So each playing card has uh, basically a microchip inside it and the table is able to read what cards each player has based on those little microchips. Uh, yeah, if anyone out there is a techie, you know that I'm clearly not but I think I have the basic idea down. Now, obviously, I've played on stream before, uh, the World Series of Poker. I also played on Live at the Bike and several other streams in my career. I played in uh, one such stream where it was old school, actual camera, where you had to show your whole cards to the camera. Um, you know, a few years ago, the RFID technology made the old school whole cam, as we used to call it, virtually obsolete. So you just don't see that very much anymore. Um, but because there are computers involved, including the computer that's built into these high-tech tables that are capable of reading the whole cards and sending that information back to the, the truck, or for example, in the case of the WSOP, where you may have heard me doing commentary with David Tuckman, our dear friend David Tuckman, which, by the way, if you guys have not yet congratulated him on winning our season-long win total uh, baseball bet, please tweet him at TuckOnSports and tell him that I said you should congratulate him on a uh, successful bet against me. Uh, not enough of you have done that, so please do it. <laughs> I want to flood his uh, Twitter feed with people telling him how happy for him we all are that he won a large amount of money from me by betting with me against my uh, favorite team. Uh, I digress. So when you've heard us doing those live streams, uh, you know that information is being relayed through this technology. The problem is there are other mechanical advices, uh, devices available that are also capable of reading the RFID chips on the cards. Uh, you can actually purchase such devices on online on various websites, mostly in China. Um, the device looks very much like a, an Apple cell phone and even has some of the same functionality so that it, it would appear that a player is simply, you know, checking his Twitter or sending emails or something like that when in fact he could potentially be looking at the phone. That's, uh, and on his screen there would be the information about the other player's cards. That is one way that cheating could have occurred because for reasons I will never understand they allow cell phone use during the live stream. Now, if I were in charge of a poker room and we decided to have 
a live streamed cash game using RFID technology. There is no way I would allow players to use any type of electronic devices. Um, I remember when I've been seated at the feature table on ESPN or what have you, they told us then that we were not to use our phones except away from the table. And that included texting or tweeting or things like that. They told us that, but then there wasn't actually much enforcement of that. And there were times if you watch Poker Go or the ESPN coverage, you will see players at featured tables on their phones, usually uh, just for brief periods. Uh, staring at your phone the whole time while you're playing on a live stream, to me, would arouse suspicion. And if you watch some of these videos, this guy Mike is on his phone a lot, looking down a lot into his lap where his phone is. Um, again, circumstantial evidence, unless we can see exactly what Mike was looking at on his phone or prove that he had uh, some kind of inside partner, somebody in the truck or in the other room, like we do in the World Series, there's not actually a truck, there's just another room where the technicians are putting up the whole cards. Uh, yeah, it's, and there's no delay. So these are, these, are the, these are the things that I would put into place, okay? I wouldn't allow players to use the phones and I would delay the uh, broadcast by at least 20 minutes, if not 30 minutes. So all the quote unquote live streams that you watch during the World Series of Poker You'll hear David Tuckman or whatever other announcers are in the booth broadcasting the action from 30 minutes ago. So it's not truly live. And one reason for that is because the Nevada Gaming Commission in particular does not allow live streaming of events like poker games where anyone having access to that information in real time would have an unfair advantage over uh, the opponents. So because of that, they have a rule in place where this is not allowed. Uh, the same law does not exist in California. California is the biggest state for live poker, but they don't follow the same rules as they do in Nevada. And from what I understand, this live stream from Stone's Gambling Hall is actually live. So it seems that certain basic security measures that are pretty much common practice at this point were not in place at Stone's Gambling Hall. So cheating was possible. I still don't want to say that it occurred because I don't know that for a fact. But it certainly appears that something very unusual is going on with this player, Mike. That unusual thing could well be that he's a savant who can sense when he's outkicked and therefore fold his hand uh, on the flop, even when the rest of the <laughs> poker playing world would at least call. Um... You know, there is such thing as poker talent, <laughs> despite the title of Alex Fitzgerald's book, The Myth of Poker Talent. I believe in poker talent. I've just never seen it um, to this degree. And I've been playing for a very long time. You know, what, 20 years? Almost 20 years I've been playing poker, at least semi-professionally. So uh, I've never come across this kind of talent before. So what I'm trying to say is, although there's a non-zero chance that this is legit, I would say it's awfully close to zero. And it does appear that something really wrong is going on here. So this is a developing story, you know, uh, as I record this on Wednesday, October 2nd, uh, this is kind of unfolding so certainly by the time you're listening, especially if you're not listening on the day that this is released, uh, you know, maybe this story will have developed even further and we'll have more answers. Right now we have a lot of questions. But one thing that strikes me 
and I want to get this out there. This guy, Mike, has uh, a Twitter feed where he has not gone into hiding over this. He is coming right out and saying, thank you to all who support me. I'm not a cheater. I never cheated. You're all a bunch of haters. <laughs> You're ego-driven. You can't accept the fact that I beat you. Maybe I'm just the best at poker. Um, that's pretty bold if he did cheat. It shows a certain uh, level of confidence that, I don't know. I mean, it, you know, in comedy, when, for example, in my other life, in comedy, if a, if a, a comedian gets accused of the worst crime, the, the parallel, if you will, so if in poker the worst thing you can do is cheat, uh, in comedy the worst thing you can do is steal somebody else's joke. Uh, usually when a comedian is accused of joke theft, the comedian does not respond to the allegations. Uh, he or she will typically kind of keep quiet and let the debate play out uh, in the public, but they don't ever address the allegations or the accusations. Uh, this guy's like coming out swinging. So I don't know what that tells us. It's, it's, like, it's almost like an exercise in tells. Are you more likely to take this tack if you are guilty or is this something that a not guilty angry person who's been falsely accused would do i don't know um if if anyone ever accuses me of cheating on a live stream i will know that it's a false accusation and i think i will say um i know that i've done nothing wrong and i'm happy to cooperate with any and all investigations. Uh, if the police want to get involved, the FBI, the Gaming Commission, or anyone else who thinks I may have cheated, uh, I will cooperate fully with your investigation and I look forward to being vindicated because I'm not guilty. I don't think that I would keep it quiet. I feel like, you know, we do want to hear his side of this. Uh, but the the brash manner in which he's fighting back, it just feels almost like a smokescreen. I don't know. I don't want to say too much because, as I said before, I do believe in innocent until proven guilty. And we do not have proof that this player is actually guilty. Uh, but the explanation for his unbelievable record and the incredible amount of money He's won at relatively low stakes. And just the fact that he only had two losses over a two or three year period uh, is kind of, it's, I don't know. You can't say he's guilty, but it sure doesn't look good for him. So let's see what happens. And I think I'll be able to follow up on this story in the future. Um, the last thing I'll say about this is if you ever suspect that there's cheating going on in your game, don't be shy about talking to the dealer. Um, if I think that there might be a mark on one of the cards, even if that card is not an ace, I will show the mark to the dealer and say it appears that there's a scratch on this card. Or And I tend to look very closely at the cards because I know that Sometimes players will dig a fingernail into a card. I don't know. People try to mark up the cards. Um, and you do hear stories about that. And guys, don't expect the card that's marked to always be an ace. Sometimes they might just mark all the diamonds. Um, so that way, if they can catch one of the marks when there's a lot of diamonds on the board, they can put you on the flush a little more easily. Um you know, they don't always just mark the high cards and the aces. That's a little too obvious. Generally speaking, cheaters mark other cards. And so the aces would basically be clean. And then if you have two clean cards, he'll know that one hand you might have is aces. You know, these kind of cheaters aren't really looking to be able to know exactly what you have all the time. But even if they have any information about your hand, obviously that's not a fair game because you don't have information about their hands. So if you feel like there might be cheating going on, definitely speak up. Point it out to the dealer. 
And if the dealer doesn't really help you, then ask the dealer to call the floor and say, you know, I'm just concerned because a lot of the cards in this deck appear to have markings on them and I don't feel comfortable playing with that deck. So they bring a new deck and if that new deck is suddenly marked, then you know somebody is marking the cards. So that's fine to do that. I know a lot of us don't want to ask for a new setup uh, because there's kind of a stigma about slowing down the game. But I would rather slow down a crooked game and discourage cheating than to be the one who's afraid to speak up and and get cheated in the process. So, unfortunately, whenever there's a lot of money to be made, there will be people who are trying to get it uh, unscrupulously, and poker is no different. Okay, next I want to answer a question that was sent to me via Twitter at Clayton Comic. Uh, I always appreciate the tweets, guys. Um, anytime you want to send me a tweet, even if it's to say you think I played a hand like a donkey or you don't like the sound of my voice, obviously I prefer compliments, but all feedback is useful to me and uh, it, it means a lot. So at Clayton Comic, let us know what you think about the podcast, about the hands that we discuss, or anything else at all. Always good to hear from you guys. And this comes from a Twitter user that I believe we've even mentioned on the podcast before, Daniel Gogan. And I'm pretty sure we talked about Daniel before. It's at Dango Poker, and I'm sure that I'm mispronouncing his name. Here's the tweet. I understand how to calculate M, but as a 15-year user of how many big blinds I have, could you share how to use M in relation to big blinds, meaning over 30 big blinds is still good, 10 big blinds is shove or fold, what is the M equivalent? Really good question, Daniel. Uh, So the reason why you think in terms of, well, if I have 10 big blinds, I should shove or fold, and if I have over 30 big blinds, I actually have maneuverability to raise, four bet, get it in, like whatever. The reason why is actually, mathematically speaking, because of this stack-to-pot ratio that we are uh, talking about when we, when we use M. So shoving with certain hands when there's no ante and you have 10 big blinds would actually be a mistake versus it being correct when there is a big blind ante. So because M is more precise, it helps you make up your mind about what to do. And we're going to talk about that uh, mathematically in a minute. But first, I want to give you the, at this point, age-old wisdom from 15 years ago when Harrington on Hold'em really uh, brought M into focus. It was actually invented by the late Paul McGrill, or as backgammon players used to call him, X-22. Uh, Paul McGrill was a mathematician and an excellent backgammon player and gambler who got involved in poker and started using M for his last name, McGrill, to, as a shortcut for the pre-flop SPR. Uh, the advice in that book is that if your M is over 20, then you have all possible tools at your disposal, meaning you could maybe check-raise on the turn and still have enough, check-raise bluff on the turn and still have enough chips to get away from your hand or whatever. Um, You can play all types of hands, suited connectors, small pairs, everything's at your disposal as long as you have over 20 as your M. Uh, And again, this is from a book that was written 15 years ago. Things have changed substantially since then because, well, the main difference is that raise, uh, pre-flop raise sizing has changed so much. The standard raise back in those days was three to five times the big blind to open, and now it is still much closer to two times the big blind in almost every tournament I play. By the way, guys, apologize for my voice. This time of year, I have really bad uh, allergies. So 
if I sound a little like Screech from Saved by the Bell, I hope that the content is worth <laughs> listening to uh, the crackling in my vocal cords. Anyway, so M, uh, M over 20, he would say you are in the green zone. So he color-coded the different zones. So if you go through that old book, if you have a copy on your shelf, you'll see this. I'm talking about the blue volume one. He talks about different stages in the tournament and how M affects your decision-making. So if your uh, M is between 10 and 20, uh, Harrington advises that you are in the yellow zone. So in the yellow zone, you're really just trying to get back into the green zone. So strategically, he recommends maybe taking a few more chances than you otherwise would in order to get your stack back into the green zone. So the idea is it's worth it to maybe try to steal the blinds now, but perhaps when your stack is, uh, when, when your M is over 20, it's kind of pointless to steal the blinds because the difference that makes to your stack is so minimal. So maybe you want to open up your range a little bit and take more take more shots. As you get towards the bottom of the yellow zone and into what he calls the orange zone, which is an M of 6 to 10, uh, certain hands become unplayable. Those are the small pairs and the suited connectors. Uh, the exception might be if you just want to open shove with some of those small pairs, but you're pretty much throwing away all the suited connectors and other speculative hands. Nowadays, we would probably include the suited aces. So if your M is seven or eight, you don't really want to get involved with a suited ace or a pair of threes. But if you had an M of 20 or 25, because the implied odds could be there because your stack is so large, if you can manage to double that stack by flopping a set, it's worth it to speculate on such a marginal to poor hand. So that's kind of the, uh, the strategy advice. And then anything below or five or below, uh, Harrington puts in the red zone. And in that book, he says that when we're in the red zone, our hand doesn't matter. Basically, you want the first in vigorish, as he calls it. And the first in vigorish means that no one else has limped into the pot or put in a raise. So whether it's two folds to me or I'm under the gun or it folds all the way around to me in, on the button, if I'm in the red zone, I should pretty much go all in with any two cards. Now, obviously, with uh, poker strategy and uh, poker advice becoming more sophisticated, obviously, since then, uh, we now have these push-fold charts and we know exactly what hands are profitable with exactly what kind of stack. But those push-fold charts are still just approximating what you need to do because the ante will vary. So if you're in a tournament with a big blind ante that's the same size as the big blind, you can actually put... Uh, you can you will make money playing a few more hands than are on the chart um, if the chart doesn't take the amount of the ante into account. It kind of depends on what, what chart you're looking at. But the bottom line is if you if you just forget about counting your big blinds and look at that stack-to-pot ratio, then you'll really know exactly what you can shove and what you can't. And more importantly... It just gives you a sense of, if you do shove, exactly what kind of price you're giving your opponent. And therefore, it helps you understand how often your shove needs to work in order to be profitable. So if, you, if it turns out that that number ends up being, let's say, 80%, uh, you know, that would be a really, uh, a really high uh, demand that you would need to be that you need to win without a showdown 80% of the time uh, then you need to look at what kind of uh, price am I offering my opponent 
So that's basically why we want to use M or at least, you know, I don't mind like on this podcast, I like to try to do both, but I just prefer M because it's a more precise number. Um, so let's talk about this math a little bit more in a little bit uh, more detail for tournament players. So let's say we have 1,000 and 2,000 for the ante, and there is a 2,000 big blind ante, and we have 50,000 in our stack. So you're probably used to saying, okay, great, 25 bigs. I know how to play 25 big blinds. I'm sure you do, but let's talk mathematically just for a few minutes here about how things can change. So an open shove with this stack would be bringing the pot to 55,000 and offering pot odds of 55,000 to 5,000 or 5.5 to 5 or 1.1 to 1. So an opponent who's considering calling our shove is getting pot odds of 1.1 to one, which is not attractive. So therefore our opponent needs to have a really big hand to make the call. The problem is sometimes your opponents pick up big hands and they make the call. So just doing this willy nilly every time your M is 10 is a losing play because when you do get called, you're going to be behind unless you actually started with something really strong. So Another way I like to look at it is what am I risking to win, to increase my stack by what percentage? So in this situation, I'm shoving 50,000 to win 5,000, effectively trying to increase my stack by 10%. In most tournament situations, increasing my stack by 10% isn't that big of a difference. It's substantial but not enough to just take any two cards and blindly shove all in, which is why we don't shove all in with any two with an M of 10. But you probably already knew that because you don't do it when you have 25 big blinds either. Let's do another example with these same blinds, 1,000, 2,000 with a 2,000 ante, and this time we have 25,000 in our stack. You're probably used to calculating your big blinds, and in this case you would have 12 and a half big blinds, right? 2,000 times 12.5 is 25,000. Now, the way I would look at it, my M is five, and it's probably profitable at most tables to shove with a very wide range of, of hands because of that big blind ante. I'm now putting in 25,000 to win 5,000. So I'm offering my opponent 30,000 to 25,000, which is six to five, which is not great pot odds. It's 1.2 to one, which, you know, as you know from reading charts about what kind of odds you need to be getting to make certain calls, you know, many times, for example, when we're in the big blind pre-flop and we have a stack and we're playing fairly deep, we call with a very wide range because we're getting three or four to one odds, sometimes even more than that depending on uh, the preflop action and the size of the ante. So calling when you're getting three or four to one with any two cards may be correct, but six to five or 1.2 to one is not the type of odds you wanna be getting to call with a marginal hand. So you're gonna get a lot of folds with an M of five, and you're also going to increase your stack by 20% because you're laying 25,000 to win 5,000. The difference between having 25,000 and having 30,000 is 20%. What that means is if I can get away with it five times without getting called, I basically doubled my stack. Not counting for whenever I had to pay the blinds, of course. So that's when we have a big big blind ante. Just to take it to the extreme, let's say there's no ante at all. And let's try to do this same thing. If you just counted your 12 and a half big blinds, but this time we take away the big blind ante. 
well, there's only 3,000 in the pot. So now if I open shove my 12 and a half big blinds, uh, I'm making a big mistake because I'm basically putting in that same 25,000 to win only 3,000 and increase my stack by just over 10%. And as we just said in the previous example, increasing your stack by 10% is usually not worth the risk with any two cards. So I don't know which push fold charts you guys are reading, but look at the difference that Ante makes. I think in late position with an M of four or five, shoving with any ace, any king, obviously any pair, any suited connector, like a full 30% of hands, maybe even 40% of hands is correct. And when your M gets down to two or three, it's probably defensible to shove with the first in vigorish with any two cards, literally any two, even like 10 deuce. Because let's face it, your position in the tournament is pretty bad anyway. <laughs> your chances of winning the tournament are pretty bad anyway. And what's in the pot already with the blinds and antes is so uh, meaningful to your stack that it's more important than the actual cards you hold. I've noticed from commenting on live streams and watching the way players uh, play in high stakes tournaments that we've kind of gotten away from this and people still want to pick up a hand. And that's one reason why tournaments are lasting longer and longer and longer because players aren't taking the appropriate risks when they get short stacked. Um, and it's also causing those players who uh, do get out a little bit more out of line, they, they're actually more profitable as a result because people just don't want to get involved. They don't take coin flips when they theoretically should, and they don't go for the blinds and antes, even though they represent such a significant uh, increase to their stack, they still want to have a real hand to make that play. And part of it's a symptom of structures getting so quote-unquote good I call them slow, slow structures, players love. So that's just kind of what we're up against. These slow structures are very difficult. Uh, it's hard to justify when you have two hour blinds, in other words, with the slow structure, the blinds don't go up for two hours in the main event. It's hard to justify shoving nine deuce, even if there's a chart somewhere that says you should, you probably figure you'll find a higher EV spot sometime in the next two hours. And maybe you're right. So of course, when Harrington and Holden was written and when this kind of game theory was uh, the state of the art, and at the time when this book was printed, it was the most comprehensive strategy guide for No Limit Hold'em. Now, a lot of the advice that's in it now has been kind of disproven. I still recommend you read the book just because some of the concepts that are introduced are so good just from a mathematical, uh, theoretical understanding but I don't want you guys to go in and start opening 5X <laughs> and making these kind of plays all the time. Uh, so that's it. Thank you again for your question. And anyone else who wants to ask about M seems to be, uh, I've suddenly become the authority on M, even though it predates my involvement in poker by many, many years. Uh, I must be the last person in the world who's actually using it. Um, or anything else that you guys want to discuss uh, just go on Twitter, at Clayton Comic, and I would love to hear from you. So I want to get into a hand that Daniel Negranu actually played. We're going to be Daniel in this hand, guys, so you can fulfill your lifelong dream of being kid poker in uh, day 1B of this year's main event. So the 2019 main event. It's early on day 1B, and we've been running bad. Um, we flopped a set, and another player flopped a straight. But still, it be, it, because it's so early in the tournament, we actually are doing fine. You start with 60,000 this year, and we're only down to 53,000. But it's still level one, and you always hate to get off to a bad start in the main event. But uh, let's talk about this hand from Daniel's perspective. And I, I, it ends up being a heads-up pot. I don't want to tell you what the other player has 
until the end. But let's talk through this hand as Kid Poker and put ourselves in his shoes. So uh, there are only seven players at the table. The reason for this is it's early on day 1B, and because structures are so quote-unquote good, many players don't feel the need to show up for tournaments, even this one, on time. So there are two players missing at our table. I don't think their stacks are being dealt in, though. So it's basically a seven-handed television table, which is something that Poker Go and Poker Productions probably don't appreciate at all. Um, but it is early, and you know maybe they shouldn't start tournaments at 11 a.m., which is an ungodly hour for a professional poker player who's been in Vegas all summer. But I can, I'll, we'll never go back to the old days, despite <laughs> what Joe McKeon thinks. Uh, the blinds are 100-200 with a 200 big blind ante. So there's 500 in the middle, and we've got 53,000 in our stack. So let's just say we're, uh, we're not desperate. Uh, in fourth position, which at a seven-handed table is the cutoff, so three folds to us, and we have the king of clubs and jack of hearts. Let's talk about the players uh, yet to act. The one on our immediate left on the button is an amateur who seems afraid of us. Uh, in the small blind is an excellent and very underrated pro, James Van Alstyne, who has won World Series of Poker bracelet and one WPT title. Um, now I'm being Clayton, not Daniel. I can tell you that I played against James in the mixed uh, PLO and No Limit Hold'em tournament that they did towards the end of the summer this year. And he was beastly. Um, he's a killer at both games and very, very hard to read. Um, he's an old school seasoned pro with no tells at all, and he really knows how to mix up his play. So he's dangerous, and he's in the small blind. And I'm sure Daniel just wishes that James would go to another table because uh, the other five opponents that we have right now are mostly afraid of us, Kid Poker. Uh, and the big blind is uh, an amateur who fits that mold, player named Cummings. I'm sorry that I don't have his first name in front of me. Um, Cummings is doing fine. He's mostly been staying out of trouble. He won like a pot or two in the in the first hour. We're now in the second hour of the first level, and Cummings has built his six thousand stack all the way up to sixty one thousand. So he's feeling good and getting his feet wet. I'm not sure it's his first main event, but he doesn't strike me as someone who plays a ton of poker. So. That's your read on your opponents. With all that in mind, folded to us in the cutoff with king-jack offsuit. I think we're always going to open. And with stacks this deep, it doesn't matter if you guys want to do 400, 500, 600. I don't care. Go ahead. Um, whatever. I just wouldn't advocate folding or limping. Daniel makes it 500. Obviously, totally fine. And it folds to the player I just described, Cummings. So a little bit more about him. Uh, he's been relatively tight, staying out of trouble, maybe a little overwhelmed by being on television. Um, he's in his 50s and, uh, you know, just he's trying to hold his own here at this table. Uh, he's probably a little bit freaked out by the moment. I'm sure it's the first time he's played on TV with any cameras in his face. And now here he is on ESPN at the same table as... Someone that he, in all likelihood, has always admired. The great Daniel Negreanu, who has now raised into him. And now, in the big blind, he calls. So, it's going to be heads up between this player, Cummings, and us, Daniel Negreanu. So, with 1,300 now in the pot, the flop comes. Jack of spades, 10 of hearts, 8 of spades. So, Jack... 10, 8 with two spades. And we, Daniel, have King Jack with no spade. Uh, our opponent checks, and Daniel needs to decide what to do. I mean, I think this is a pretty clear bet. I'm sure most of you agree with that. Um, we can get called by worse. We have top pair with a good kicker. Uh, 
You could mix in a check every now and then for balance. But, you know, guys, I really don't think that against this opponent we need to balance at all. I think we just need to go ahead and try to get some value for our top pair good kicker. So, Daniel agrees. But he only bets 400, which uh, to me is a little too small. How much would you bet into the 1300 pot on this very wet board? Ten, uh, Jack 10-8 with two spades. Um, we have a hand that is unlikely to improve. And we can get action from worse hands, including draws, but also pairs. Hands like 10-9, 8-9, worse jacks, uh, even something like 10-7. Or, uh, I don't know if 10-7 would have called pre-flop, but maybe. Uh, King-10, Ace-10, Queen-10. Like, all the 10s would, would probably call for at least one bet. I don't see a reason for Daniel to put in 400 here when he's going for value. As you guys know, I, I tend to study GTO and then find times to deviate from it. I understand that a lot of solvers like this, as we call it, down betting. Um, I think on this board, holding these two cards, betting something like 800 or even 900 is probably better for Daniel. Um, you want to charge those draws and get value from worse, and there's no reason to, to only bet 400. The reason to bet 400 is because you'd like to be able to bet 400 when you have a draw yourself um, or when you have a really big hand, like a set and you want to be able to bet small on the flop and then big on the turn. Uh, that's all well and good, but it just doesn't feel like the right hand. And because I don't think we need to balance, I would go ahead and make the larger bet here against this particular individual opponent. I can see putting in 400 uh, against uh, some kind of killer like Stephen Chidwick or somebody like that. But against this particular player, I don't see the, the point of betting 400, and I would have gone at least double that. But anyway, Daniel mm -hmm. bets 400 into the 1300 pot, and Cummings calls rather quickly. So now in Daniel's shoes, we have a problem. Uh, we probably have the best hand, uh, but it's very hard to arrange Mr. Cummings because our bet was so small, he should call with a pretty wide range. We want him to call with a wide range, of course. But I think on this flop, it's a little too dicey. On a wet board like this, go ahead and protect your hand with a bigger bet. So now there's 2,100 in the pot. And, you know, of course, we have we both have well over 50K in our stacks. So we're not talking about commitment or any SPR issues at this point. The turn is the king of diamonds. Giving us top two pair, kings and jacks. So now the board is king, 10, 8 with two spades. And now king of diamonds. Uh, sorry, jack 10, 8 with two spades. And now the king on the turn. So jack 10, 8, king with two spades. Cummings checks. And into the 2100 pot, Daniel now put, pulls out the big guns, betting 2,000. So let's talk about this sizing i mean it's it's 100 less than the pot so it's a it's a bomb right a really big bet for the situation um what is the logic here uh daniel can't get action from tens anymore i think that cummings is always going to fold a hand like ace 10 or 10 7 to this very large bet on fourth street and oddly, those are the hands that Daniel should want to get action from. Um, so what, what hands is he targeting? I guess he's targeting other two pairs, maybe hoping that his opponent has king-10 precisely and called 400 on the flop with second pair and now makes two pair and just can't get away from it. That, that makes sense. Um, maybe a slow-played jack-10. But I think that this opponent would have check-raised on the flop, holding two pair or better. So I think the only hand that can call this bet that we're still beating is actually king 10, which obviously we block with our king jack. Um, and the reason for that, guys, is I don't think he has any other two pairs, any flopped two pairs. 
So it's it's an odd sizing. I disagree with Daniel's sizing both on the flop and the turn. Uh, Cummings sees this big bet on the turn, a pot-sized turn bet, and check raises it to 4,400. So basically a min click back with a, with a little change in it to 4,400. Now, in Daniel's shoes, I would pretty much assume this amateur opponent has me beat like 100% of the time. So what does he have? Queen nine, flopped a straight. Um, Ace queen, just made a straight. Had a gut shot with two over cards on the flop. Very reasonable to call 400 with that hand. Um, maybe a flopped set. Might have slow played. Although even then I think that's usually going to be check raising the wet board. Most amateur opponents will check raise uh, to protect their hands on a wet board. They don't tend to slow play on a board as wet as jack 10-8 with two spades. So we can kind of discount those hands a lot. Um, unless he flopped the nuts with queen nine or even nine seven, I think still has to be feeling pretty good. Flopped a straight, uh, and just wants to try to get value at this point. It feels like we're never any good though. I don't think Cummings would do this. This is important. I don't think Cummings would check raise with King 10. I don't think he would check raise with any other two pair hand. And I'm not even sure he would do it with a set. That's how people play day one of the main event. A check raise on the turn from an amateur opponent with the read I gave on this one is pretty much always a very top of range kind of value bet. But I still don't blame Daniel if he wants to call this check raise because given the read that our opponent probably has at least a set if not a straight we have four outs to win a really, really big pot off of him if we can manage to fill up. So with that in mind and the pot odds, the price that Daniel's getting, uh, four to one on a call, I think it's fine to call. Uh, and that's what Daniel does. Actually, four and a half to one. Look at it. So now there's 10,900 in the pot and the river is the deuce of spades. And now Cummings, who check-raised the turn, leads into us for 4400 Okay, let's talk about this river card. It completes the flush. So if Daniel wasn't already worried that he was up against a set or a straight, he now also has to worry about being up against a flush. I just think King Jack is always the second best hand. It is top two pair. It's never fun to fold top two pair. It is a small bet, less than half the pot um, by Cummings here on the on the river, offering um, you know about three point six to one on a call. Very compelling pot odds, and against uh, an opponent that I perceive to be more experienced, tougher, uh, more capable of check raise bluffing the turn and then continuing. With another, uh, you know, shell on the river, I could see calling this, but you know, I feel like the way you play poker needs to be based on your opponent and your opponent's perceived skill level. Now, Daniel's been watching Cummings for as long as I have, about an hour, hour and ten minutes here on the stream. Um, Daniel's been watching him live at the same table uh, this player hasn't made a move yet and he does seem intimidated by the situation it's a big leap to think that he's doing all of this with worse than King Jack so just throw your hand away Daniel calls and Cummings shows ace queen of clubs so although there were no clubs on the flop the 400 bet on the flop just enticed him. Actually, he's double gutted. I didn't even notice that before, but he's double gutted on the flop. So he really has to call 400 at least, if not check raise it. So with all that in mind, uh, 
the way Cummings played the hand was great. I think he could have check raised bigger on the turn. Um, you know, when your opponent fires a pot size bet on the turn, your opponent is basically announcing a polarized range, a really, really big hand, or a total bluff. In other words, Daniel's never betting 2,000 on the turn with like second pair ace kicker, right? He's just not. No one does that because it doesn't make sense to do it for game theoretical reasons we're not going to get into now. It doesn't make sense to fire a condensed range, uh, a pot size bet with a condensed range on the turn. So Daniel is representing a big hand or a bluff. And when Cummings has the nuts, the King of Diamonds gave him the, the stone cold Broadway straight, the nuts. Uh, he knows that his hand is good and Daniel either has a big hand or nothing. And when he has nothing, it doesn't matter. So we might as well just be optimistic. So here on the turn, I would have made it like 6,600 instead of 4,400. And Daniel probably would have called that. And then you can make a similar bet, another 6,000 on the river. And this is how you accumulate chips in a tournament. And the difference between a pro and an amateur, in my opinion, is the pros know how to get away from relatively big hands when amateurs have bigger hands and pros get maximum value for the their hands when they have the nuts. So another player in Cummings shoes probably would have check raised bigger and then it would set him up for a much bigger value bet on the end and he would win a much bigger pot from a great player in this situation. What do you guys think of Daniel's play in this hand? Uh, do you even continue on the turn when you get check raised? Do you think I'm being too hard on Daniel? It's a cooler. He had top two. Is he really supposed to fold? Tell me what you think. Tweet us at Clayton Comic. Let me know what you think of this one. And the next time we talk and I don't have a guest, we'll continue our coverage of the World Series of Poker with Day 1C. That'll do it for this episode. Uh, if you guys are not members of Tournament Poker Edge, I recommend you would, you would join as soon as possible. Andrew Brokus recently released an every hand revealed style, uh, every important pot that he played in this year's World Series of Poker main event in which he finished 125th. And there are a lot of really interesting spots and you can get into the mind of a player that I really respect a lot and also a teacher that is so good at explaining things. Uh, you can join and have access to that video and so much more for as little as $25 a month. Visit tournamentpokeredge.com. So for everyone here at TPE, I'm Clayton Fletcher. Thank you all so much for listening.